from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Welcome to another Center for European Reform podcast. My name is Sofia Resch. We have almost reached the point in Brexit negotiations where things become concrete and the UK and the EU27 are moving on to discussing their future relationship. Now, the UK is proposing a unique bespoke model based on regulatory alignment. John Springford and Sam Lowe have written a piece for the CER explaining that model and we've had John on the podcast last week detailing why regulatory alignment would in fact be very difficult to manage. This week I'm in conversation with Charles Grant, the director of the Centre for European Reform, to talk about the politics of this British proposal and how the British visions, how the British ideas are received in Europe, in Paris, in Berlin and Brussels. Welcome, Charles. So one thing that John has referred to last week was that in the EU27 there's a view that the British proposal amounts to cherry-picking. Charles, could you just explain why the EU27 might feel that way? First of all, one should say there isn't formally any British proposal yet. There are hints of a future British proposal, and British officials are saying that people should look carefully at a publication from the Institute for Government, and one of the sort of proposals, sort of schemes sketched out there, which is for the so-called three-basket model. Very briefly, the idea is that all sorts of economic activity between the UK and the EU would be divided into three baskets for the future relationship. Basket A, everything very closely aligned. The UK follows the EU's rules and has, it's almost being in the single market in certain areas. That might be for the car industry, for example. Basket B, rough alignment. The EU and the UK have common objectives but decide to choose their own rules as to how they should reach those objectives and have their own systems of law. That might be for financial services, kind of managed mutual recognition. Basket C, where the single market isn't really relevant, the regulation of hairdressers say the British can just choose exactly what rules they want to have without any reference to the EU. That's the basic idea. And it is fair to say that the EU side is not enthusiastic about this new proposal for a bespoke system for the future relationship based on regulatory alignment. Because, as you said, Sophia, it's cherry-picking. The British would stay in certain bits of the single market, say for the car industry, where they really suited them, and they would not be in other bits where it didn't suit them. So there'd be a very one-sided relationship that really suited the British very well. But there are other objections the EU has. More generally, they've always seen the EU side, the single market, as being four freedoms that are indivisible, including freedom of movement. And if the British don't accept free movement, and they don't, why should they be allowed in any bits of the single market at all? The Germans worry that this proposal is a bit like the Swiss model. The Swiss are in the single market for goods, not in other parts of the single market. But the EU doesn't like the Swiss model because it doesn't have any procedure by which it can enforce EU law in Switzerland. The ECJ's writ does not run in Switzerland, so the EU doesn't want to repeat the Swiss model for the Brits. There's a more practical issue. How would the EU itself decide which areas it wanted to put in which baskets? Because the 27 member states have very different interests, priorities and preferences, and it would take them many years, they tell me, to work out which areas of economic activity should fall into which basket, let alone a few more years to negotiate all that with the British. And then there's a finally, there's a more political problem that Mrs Merkel apparently has and some other member states share. She is said to be saying, if the British are seen to thrive outside the EU, and this model of regulatory alignment could allow the British to thrive, it'd be quite good for the British economy, then other countries say the Dutch might want to follow the British outside the EU. Therefore, the British must not be allowed to thrive, which leads certainly the Germans, the French, the Commission and some others to say... 
British should just listen to what Michel Barnier tells them. He tells them you can have Norway if you really want to be in the single market with all the prices to be paid in terms of free movement, ECJ, jurisprudence, being a rule taker, payments to the budget and so on. Or you can have a Canada-style free trade agreement, which is good for the trade in goods, no tariffs on goods, but isn't very good for services. And Britain, of course, is a service-based economy. That's what Barnier is telling the UK. And the Germans, the French, the Commission and several others are saying to the Brits, you should listen to what Barnier says. So there was a admirable unity in the EU27 over the course of what is generally referred to as phase one, the divorce negotiations. And now you can hear the hope among some British officials that moving on to phase two, that unity might falter, that the interests of the EU27 differ and that that is an opportunity for the British, that Paris, Berlin and the Commission, who have, as you said, been in the past, been the main players, will sort of lose control of that process a little bit. What do you say to these British officials? They have half a point. They are certainly right, British officials, that in phase one of the Brexit talks, the focus of which was the money that the EU wants the British to pay to get out of the EU. The EU is very united. Everybody in the EU, the 27, agreed the British should pay as much money as possible. Phase two is more complicated because different EU member states have different interests. In Poland, for example, the main interest is the rights of Polish citizens living in the UK. For the Dutch, who trade enormously with Britain, the main interest is maintaining the massive trade they have with Britain unimpeded. For the Luxembourgers, it is maintaining the very important financial services arrangements that they have with the British. So the 27 don't really agree on exactly what should be the priorities in phase two. And it's perhaps 10 of the 27, and by my own count, roughly 10, a third of the member states, think that the French and the Germans and the Commission are being too tough, too hard, too restrictive in proposing essentially the Canada model or Canada Plus if the British are very, very lucky. And we can talk about what the plus might be. This doesn't mean that 10 member states support the British proposals for regulatory alignment. They don't. I think probably very, very few, if any, really are sympathetic to those proposals. It does mean that the French and the Germans will have to fight to win the argument for a narrow deal of the sort that they and Mr Barnier apparently wish to propose. In your recent insight that you wrote on this topic, which is called Canada, Norway or something in between and which listeners can find on the CEO website, you make the point that this all falls into a broader political process, that of course the EU is not just occupied with Brexit negotiations, but that the next MFF negotiations, the multi-annual financial framework, are about to begin and that there are power plays within this process that might well reflect into what countries prioritize when it comes to the Brexit negotiations. This is another reason why the British shouldn't get too excited about the apparent divisions amongst the 27. I mean, there is power play at stake here. Uh, France, Germany usually get their way, not on everything, but on a lot of EU issues, because they're very powerful and influential, especially when they have the Commission and the Parliament lined up behind them, as they do. And those countries who would welcome a softer Brexit, maintaining more economic activity between the UK and the EU, such as the Dutch, the Swedes, the Danes, perhaps the Portuguese, the Poles, the Hungarians, the Irish, some others too, they don't have a, a natural lead. They don't have a very strong leader. Perhaps the Italians, I should have added to that list. But Italy's tied up with the general elections. Italy can't lead the, uh, the more sympathetic to British forces. So those who want to give the British a better deal are divided and not very powerful. The French and the Germans and the Commission and the Parliament are quite united. And as you said, Sophia, there is the little matter of the multi-annual financial framework, Brussels jargon, for the next five or seven-year budget cycle for the EU. A lot of countries 
banks such as those in Central Europe receive money from the EU in structural funds and the Germans are the biggest paymasters of Europe so I'm not sure every member state that would like the EU to be a bit soft from the British is going to annoy the Germans by expressing that view too loudly if it could mean the Germans are tougher in the MFF negotiations. So there are many other issues at stake here and the British should not imagine that Brexit is the number one preoccupation for every EU government as it is evidently for that in London. I was in Paris last week talking to people in Macron's government who work on European issues, the different ministries and the Prime Minister's office and the President's office and Brexit was far from being any of their priority. Their focus is the future of the EU, particular can they revive, revise and improve the Eurozone through working with the Germans? Can they agree on new policies for dealing with refugees and so on? And Brexit is a bit of an annoyance, a bit of an encumbrance, but it's certainly not their priority and it's not even a big worry for the French. The British, however, do have to deal with this cumbersome and perhaps less interesting question. And I was just wondering, in light of these conversations that you've had in Paris and Berlin and Brussels and elsewhere, I want to get to what you think the best possible outcome is that the British can achieve and how you think they could get there. You mentioned Canada Plus earlier. Could you expand a little bit on what that would mean? I think if the British are very lucky and are very skillful, they can probably achieve a deeper relationship than that enjoyed by Canada uh, and the EU. After all, today's trade between the EU and Britain is eight times larger than that between Canada and Britain. So, plus there's cooperation on security, defence, research that many in the EU wish to maintain. In fact, probably all in the EU wish to maintain, as do the British. So, the plus to Canada will, will hopefully be quite substantial. What will be most difficult for the British is the area of services, because the Canada-EU free trade agreement does cover some services like telecoms and public procurement, but not very many services. It doesn't include financial services, which matters to the British economy, or aviation or electricity or media and audiovisual, all of which are quite important for Britain. So the question is, can the British persuade the EU to give them more on services? I don't think they can get single market access on those areas, for example, banking, passporting or aviation rights, because the EU just doesn't want to give them anything that generous. But there could be a deal giving them partial or limited access in those areas. What will they have to do to achieve that? Well, I think they need to be a little bit more flexible on their red lines than they have been. But by the way, they do actually need to work out what they want. We've been talking about embryonic, very vague British proposals which do not yet exist because the British government's finding it so difficult to work out what it wants, but it needs to make some concrete proposals pretty soon, and that would, it would in itself create some goodwill amongst other member states and allow them to be more generous, perhaps, in their response. One of the things I learned in Paris last week is there's a lot of impatience with the prevarication in London and the endless internal arguments the British government as to what should be the proposal for phase two of the Brexit talks. So I think if the British produce some proposals quickly, if they lean over backwards to understand and respond to European concerns on how the arrangements should be policed, on how they should be enforced, on the level playing field and how important that is. And if the British agree to procedures whereby deviations from the level playing field can effectively be punished, that would create a lot of goodwill. If the British decide on a regime for EU immigration that is not too restrictive and in particular discriminates between EU citizens and non-EU citizens so that people from EU countries such as yourself, Sophia, who come to the UK are treated relatively well and relatively easily, that would create goodwill. There are two other issues, two red lines I think the British would be advised, in my view, to soften on a little. 
One is the Court of Justice. If the UK persists in wanting no role at all for the Court of Justice in the future relationship, that will very much limit what the EU will offer in terms of participation in EU agencies or even getting anywhere close to the single market in areas like finance or aviation or electricity or data flows. So the British, I would advise, to soften in their opposition to the Court of Justice. And then there's the issue of money. There have been one or two hints from some parts of the German government that the British might be able to buy better access. That is not German government policy, it's certainly not EU policy. And most EU governments say we're very principled, we won't sell participation in our markets to those mercenary British. But in fact, the EU does face a bit of a problem. There's going to be a 12 billion euros a year hole in its budget because of Brexit. Some countries that pay more, pay a lot already, like Germany will have to pay a bit more. Some countries that receive money like Poland will receive a bit less. If the British were to throw in a few billion euros as a goodwill payment disguised in the form of some participation in EU programmes rather than direct contributions to that budget controlled by the Wicked Commission, that might help to create a bit of goodwill. And I wouldn't exclude in the final haggle over what kind of deal the British get that the British might be able to uh, incite some goodwill just by being generous with their money. So if the British can soften their red lines on money, on the court of justice, on free movement, on rule taking, not rule making, then I would speculate that the British can get Canada plus, but they're not going to be in the single market, I fear. And I think that they're very interesting and certainly respectable ideas being developed in London on regulatory alignment are highly unlikely to fly with their EU partners unless the, all the red lines change dramatically. Charles Grant, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the CER podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CER underscore EU.